0: This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of Today's Workplace Podcast. Welcome to Today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for Today's Workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed-Shannon.
1: During season one of today's Workplace, we examine various aspects of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the workplace and employees. This season, we want to turn our attention to what some call the second epidemic that impacted our communities during last summer's murder of George Floyd at the hands of law enforcement and the period of social justice and racial reconciliation that followed. We saw Americans in cities around the country demand racial equality and consequently, companies everywhere responded by revamping and expanding efforts to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations. Today, we're excited to keep the conversation on this topic going with an attorney and law firm partner who has been very active and vocal in his call for increased opportunities and career growth for lawyers of color in law firms. We are very happy to welcome Don Profit, partner of Costanji Brooks to today's workplace. At this point, normally we present the bio of our guest at this point, but since Don has such an interesting story, we'd like for you, Don, to tell us a little bit about your journey.
2: Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be on your podcast uh, and I appreciate the invitation. My journey, it's probably not as interesting as you've made it out to be, but I'll give you the quick Reader's Digest version. Started a big firm on the East Coast out of law school. And then uh, I ended up, after about five years in a big firm, going in-house with a, a Sprint Corporation, which moved me from the East Coast to the Midwest. And then I spent quite a bit of time there, uh, all the way I think eight or nine years in that position. And then I emerged and decided I wanted to uh, take some of the things I had learned being first the provider services and then a consumer services, although still providing services internally. And I, I wanted to use some of the things I had learned uh, back in the uh, private sector. Of law firms, and so I went back to the law firm, uh, big midwestern firm here, where I headed up their labor and employment practice, and then uh, from there on, I started figuring out what the marketplace uh, was going to look like. You know, the consolidation of firms was starting around that time. That, that's when uh, big firms were merging and small firm were expanding. Uh, and you start having uh, firms opening offices all over the place rather than just being regional. And having been in house, I had seen this thing growing and that that was the future. So I ultimately opened the uh, Kansas City office of a big firm. And then uh, been doing that opening offices <laughs> for a long time Probably over the last uh, eighteen years or so.
1: That's great. So you 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 landed in uh, Kansas City I as did. your final stop.
2: I did. I landed in Kansas City, got married in Kansas City at the time, and then had two kids in Kansas City. <laughs> so uh, I still maintain a heavy presence here, but split my time between Kansas City and New York at the present. Yeah.
1: So along the way, though, Dawn, one of the things that um, really attracted to uh, you to us um, about having this conversation is that you have given very impressive leadership in some of your writings uh, about uh, the need to support lawyers of color in law firms. Can you tell us a little bit about your quote-unquote activism on that front?
2: Yeah, uh, and thank you for that. So... Just a little bit of a predicate to my answer is that you know, as you get older, you start remembering what your your folks told you, right? You didn't understand what the hell they were talking about back then, but it all makes sense now. And so I had a mentor early on said, the first part of your career, you learn. The second third of your career, you put into effect what you learn. And the third part of your career is your legacy development. So I'm, much to my dismay, closer to the last part of my career than to the first part of my career. So uh, one of the things I wanted to do, and, you know, I've been blessed to be in a great profession in many ways. Uh, and the profession uh, has been allowed me to lead a, a comfortable life and put my kids through a good life, uh, sometimes maybe too good but certainly uh, I wanted to do something that was more legacy driven than solely. Well, Prophet was able to do well for himself and he did well financially and and that's my tombstone, right? Uh, And one of the things that I'm passionate about and that I've always been passionate about is is not only inclusivity of uh, racially diverse, lawyers in the profession, but also ownership, the ownership ability of racially diverse lawyers in the profession. Both have been, as you all know, the two of you have been tremendously successful in your careers. And and so I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but both have been elusive uh, for people of color.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: My goal is to hire as many wonderfully talented people of color as i can in our firm to give them the same opportunities that uh, majority lawyers get in big firms to also create a uh, the, the the transfer of both business knowledge mentorship and power through time uh, and, and through creating some, uh, a an ecosystem that allows us the same uh, opportunities to succeed and fail that the majority lawyers seem to get uh, as a birthright.
1: That's great. Thank you for sharing that.
3: One slight addition to your um, introduction is, I think we referred to to Kostanji Brooks, and I think there's another part of that name. So would you tell
2: us the name of your firm and what your role Uh, uh, is? So, you know, firms are typically referred to by their first two names, but the entire firm name is Constanji, Brooks, Smith and Profit.
1: Oh, that was that was a serious. (laughs) That was a a serious fail on my part. Forgive me, Don. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. No worries about that.
3: Now, I remember having a conversation with Don um, around the time that he joined the firm and a very conscious decision that he made to become a name partner in a majority firm and the advantages that he thought um, that that would bring. So, congratulations.
2: Well, thank you. What yes. you failed to say is that that was a conversation where I was begging you to open our DC office,
3: <laughs> right? That's true, that's true. That, that, is, that is very true, that is very true. So. An October 2019 survey of 238 large law firms by the Minority Corporate Counsel Association and Vault found that black lawyers made up 4.83% of associates and only 1.94% of equity partners. White lawyers made up 73.38% of associates and 89.87% of equity partners. Don, what have you found to be the root cause of such low representation of Black lawyers in law firms?
2: There, you know, I've had a chance to both experience it and to study it, uh, a study the cause and effect of these issues. While not scientific, this is based on personal, you know, personal experience. And so there are a number of factors that, that uh, basically create these disparities. There is the factor of, you know, traditionally the legal profession was a, a and remains so in many respects, was a very elitist power center. And it was not a uh, a welcoming place for people of color. In fact, if you look at probably the various business sectors in the country, you'll find that there are two centers of power and finances that are still closed to people of color, and that's the law and banking. And by banking, I mean financial institutions and all that. That's where we still, and the correlation is that those are also the principal power places of the US, right? Banking and law. You make the laws and banking is where the money is, and that's where we're not. So, uh, because I am a very suspicious person, I will say that there is a correlation between the two. So that's one. I think there's been implicit and explicit racism once we've entered the profession. I, 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 there have been studies made on this. There have been also uh, the, the uh, white papers where a certain memo was drafted with a white-sounding name, and then when it was repurposed with a black-sounding name, that all of a sudden the paper failed. Right? But it was a great paper when it had a white sounding name. So the, it's clear that, that, that there were issues there. Also, there's been a lack of interest overall in the legal profession to uh, diversify in a serious way. And, and a lot of people would say that, look, firms talk about it a lot and they post that stuff on their internet, but near activity does not create real interest. So the fact that uh, you know they say that they're interested in in resolving this issue and yet have not found any serious manner of doing so, Uh, and the numbers are very similar with respect to representation to when I started practicing in 1992. So I have to be uh, uh, incredulous of the true desire to to. address this situation and then lastly I just think that uh, people go in people of color go in they're uh, disenfranchised they get disenchanted and then they're very smart people you know they're, and then they go do other things that, that doesn't require such a taxing environment and an intellectually uh, debasing environment and so they leave.
1: So last summer As Americans and cities across the world were demanding racial equality, a lot of organizations, including legal organizations, started calling on the industry to make changes. Um, You talked about the fact that, you know, some of them have always talked about the need for change, but haven't really done anything. And so... You know, I'd like you to tell us, as a legal industry veteran and insider, uh, can you share any observations you made of how law firms and even the corporate legal departments at law firm service? Um, how did they respond once you know they heard all these calls for demanding change? And, and can you detect any positive impact at this point that those changes have had on opportunities for lawyers of color?
2: So here's the thing that happens historically, and I've been through various cycles of this, is there's something abhorrent that happens in the community and it just reinforces that there are very clear and critical problems with racial inclusiveness and the way that people of color are treated by society. And then there's this peak. We go into a peak, everybody gets excited, and for three months, six months, a year, then there's this newfound wokeness, but it never gets you anywhere because I feel like it's more an addressing the situation at the time rather than addressing the problem at its core, right? So you try to temp down the, 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 the issue rather than going to the root cause of the issue and addressing the problem. So the answer to your question is, have there been some Positive things that have come up. The positivity comes up from the fact that we're communicating more, and we continue to communicate more about these issues of uh, that are very real in the workplace and in the legal profession for people of color. Uh, the negativity is the what what I what I consider the co-opting, the easy easy co-opting of remedies or issues towards these problems, right? So I I remember even at my firm, the biggest thing people could come up with at first glance was, well, let's uh, recognize a holiday. Well, you know, that's great. A black holiday is good. I'm never gonna go against that, but that's really not addressing the root of the problems. but it's a very facile way of addressing that, that tends to, Demonstrate that you care, but doesn't in reality do anything and move the needle. So that's always my concern with that.
1: So, um, the, you know, did you see anything different happen? Did you see anything different come out of the conversations and commitments from last year?
2: No, not in the legal profession. What I did see is a heightened level of intensity from young people of color that I had never seen before. As a result of all the the things that have been going on and I I was proud to see that even my kids who are young adults, I have a 21 year old soon to be 21 year old son and 18 year old daughter and they were. extremely involved in the movement, the black lives matters movement, so I thought that there was a real opportunity for maybe this next generation to do more than certainly my generation uh, has done and maybe with more success. But law firms, again, what what I've seen from law firms is the same regurgitation of the same letters that they had before stating, oh, we we understand that there's an underrepresentation. We understand that there's problems. So we'll get signatories from law firms and, and corporations committing to address this problem with no true leadership on the commitment, no true metrics on the commitment, no true uh, ability to see what anyone is doing with respect to, to improvements. So really, it's we, we're just recycling failed methodologies.
3: Really interesting point, Don, about recycling failed methodologies. My observation has been that as companies have kind of tried to address the post George Floyd murder realities, that they're doing the same things that they've always done, and we know that those things don't work. So, from your vantage point, from your experience, both in terms of having practiced in a variety practice law in a variety of different venues, what? should law firms be doing? So first, what should law firms be doing? And then let's talk about what should corporations be doing? What are the concrete steps that leadership of law firms should take at this point, if they really want to turn this moment into a move?
2: So good questions. Think about it this way. Uh, and, And this is the most You know, I'm a simple-minded guy, so this is a very simple way for me to understand the reality of the situation. We as people of color have asked the people who engage in the bad conduct and who get the benefits of the bad conduct to self-regulate. That's never going to happen. Law firms will not self-regulate. Okay, The system is too beneficial to the stakeholders. So the only real power to change that are corporation is the people who drive the dollars, is your in-house counsel. They're the only ones who can force regulations on law firms. Law firms will do whatever they can to appear as if they are accommodating to the issues that they're serious, but ultimately the pie remains on one lever one one group has all the pie, right? And that's the, the the not the majority lawyers. So what needs to happen is that corporations need to be determined and we need to push corporations to spend their dollars and to direct their dollars in a very effective and surgical way. There are a lot of law firms out there, all right, and there are and there's my research showed there were at least in the top 250 law firm, over $40 billion of revenues generated in those firms. So this is not the whole profession. This is just a segment, a very small segment, really, of the population. Those dollars are directed to the same people. They're directed in the same manners and systemically in no different way to to urge Uh, to urge change. So if you want real change, you have to create new ecosystems. You can't regurgitate the same thing and think you're going to get a different result. And the ecosystem is we have to empower people of color to be able to create internal ecosystems that will sprout. And the only way they do that is with power, right? And power only comes with business and business only comes with dollars directed by corporation to people of color. People of color, as a general proposition, don't own the business they work with. They're overseers of the business. So it's time for for having portable business is the answer to a lot of these issues.
1: So Barbara asked you about the law firms and what they're doing, the lawyers. um, And so the lawyers within and lawyers seeking to grow in the profession, uh, particularly in corporate law areas. I'm wondering, are there any, any new recommendations for what they can do to grow their portable bank of business? Is there anything that they can take advantage of given the posture of corporations in wanting to respond to racial reconciliation?
2: Great question, so this is where I take to task everybody equally. People of color in corporations need to stop and think about how they're directing their dollars. We are not directing our dollars to other people of color. We are complicit in perpetuating a system that's been discriminatory and that's been as a general proposition continuing to disadvantage people of color because we have people of color in house who do not view it as their one of their primary responsibilities to ensure that there is a commercial flow between very talented lawyers of color and the corporation. So they go in and they just continue the system. So that's general counsel of color you're on the hot seat. Uh, Decision makers of color, you're on the hot seat. If we cannot do that for ourselves, then the ask of people, majority people is foolish.
1: Yeah, interesting.
3: Don, you talked about um, what corporations can do, but let's go back to the law firm, um, law firms for a moment. What can leadership of law firms do to ensure a positive experience for associates of color? We've talked about, you know, we've talked about business, we've talked about portable business, and that's obviously very, very important in the law firm power structure. But what about associates? What would make their experience, recognizing that from my observation, so often it's awful. It's an awful, awful experience to be an associate of color in a majority law firm. That's just a reality. So what can be done to reduce the barriers, to make folks feel more included, greater sense of belonging? What are some of the strategies that would work?
2: You're asking a great question, but um, I don't believe that the solution is from the bottom up. It's a solution from the top down. The associates have no power. Right. They go into the system as is, and they are recycled. And this is exactly what happens. We, we have corporation X says, well, why don't you have some lawyers of color? And then they recycle us, right? They don't develop us. And then they just, just as long as they have any person of color, they're good. So we go to this turnstile process that creates problem And that creates no type of bond to the firm and no type of allegiance, love, development, mentorship, none of that, right? Which is different than what uh, many majority uh, young lawyers get. So when I look at the question is what can they do more? I, I don't know that there's anything you can do if you're required to run a race from the start and somebody runs the race from the 50 yard and has got to go to the 100 yard. I, I'm gonna tell you, run twice as fast. I mean, nobody can do that, right? You can only do what you can do. The firms have to diversify their leadership. The firms have to start looking like the rest of America to understand what's necessary to go out, recruit, and create favorable environments in the workplace. Hey, other places do that. Other businesses do that. Mm-hmm. Why can't law firms, I think we give law firms in the financial industry this false pass. It's a false narrative that there's something more special about a law firm that creates this invisible uh, wall that's very difficult and only the very best can make it. Yeah, people are very smart at law firms, but there's the best companies in the world figure out how to diversify and and, and create inclusiveness, not perfectly, but much better than law firms. If law firms were simply able to meet that standard, the improvement would be dramatic. Even the military is doing great with diversity.
1: Right. Yes. So one of the things I think that law firms latched onto in, in, in terms of diversifying is is this notion of of something called the Mansfield Rule, which was a program created by diversity labs and provides metrics for legal organizations to increase their diversity. And so in order to be a Mansfield Rule certified, law firms must consider a pool that's made up of at least 30% women, attorney of colors, LGBTQ+, and lawyers with disabilities for leadership and governance roles, equity, partner promotions, and formal client pitch opportunities, and also senior lateral positions. So I was wondering, are you familiar with the rule? And, and can you um, describe any ways in which you've seen it uh, used with success?
2: I am familiar with the rule. So I, I represent professional sports teams and leagues in the past uh, and, uh, and still now. And there was an equivalent of the Mansfield or at least uh, something very similar. It's called the Rooney rule, right. right? And the Rooney rule was an abject failure, right? And the Rooney rule was the same thing is you, in order to diversify front office positions and head coaching positions, that anytime one would open, you would have to have at least a person of color be part of the interviewing process. The numbers have not ticked up at all. It has been well over a decade on that. So rules are nice, (laughs) right, if you apply them legitimately, right? So these rules, you can, so we can get invited to the dance, but if nobody asks you to dance, (laughs) it's still standing on the wall. Right. right? So that's the ultimate deal about this. It, it's no longer simply coming up with what I, I call these de facto triggers to make people happy in the moment is to create accountability, to make firms show you how they're implementing these rules, to make firms show you how they've, they've diversified their roles with very talented people. That's how that works. The mere fact that this rule exists, I frankly, I haven't seen any uptick in in any positivity as a result of the Mansfield rule.
1: Well, that's disappointing uh, that there's no uh, visible, at least to the naked eye, um, you know, impact of it yet, but unfortunately not surprising given, you know, the history of other attempts that have been done over and over and over again for years, but still haven't changed things.
3: One of our earlier guests, they talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion coaching, if you will, focusing on millennials, especially given the large number of millennials in the workplace now. What are you saying in terms of the differences with respect to how millennials are um, experiencing and perceiving issues as compared to folks who entered the profession at a time
2: when you did? So the millennials have no patience for foolishness, which scares me for the profession, right? Because when we came in, we were all in right there was no uh, when we came in if you switch firms twice within your first 10 years you were persona non grata with any firm that meant that you were just discarded right now a millennial they could switch firms every 18 months and it's not an issue right so it's no capital in the firm no personal capital in the firm and millennials are also the smartest and most attuned globally of any generation we've ever had, and they believe that they can do things differently. They believe that they can. They they don't need to sit in the law firm. They don't have to take it. We felt we had to take it. You know, Grandmama said you were going to be a lawyer, so we had to take it, and that was the deal, right? You you were either a doctor or a lawyer, and that's it, right? Here, they don't have those those same constraints. And that scares me because that means to me that there's if we don't make changes that we will lose any real numbers in law firm as people of color in fact you know i hire a lot of lawyers in our firm and we look for lawyers getting a black male lawyer is very difficult right now in a large firm the paucity of black males is alarming and it's going under the radar and we have-
1: What's the root, what, what's the cause of that? Why is that? I don't know.
2: I don't know whether it's fear of the black male. We're not hiring black males in big firms, you know, whether black males feel even more disenfranchised in law firms and go do other things. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know this. The number is at alarmingly low rates. And if we don't wake up, we will not have black males in big firms and in the profession moving forward. And that cannot happen. This is, that goes against everything we've done, right? We And the folks before us who had it even worse, right? So we, we, we can't have that happen.
3: So what do you think it's going to take, Don, to achieve true transformation that will result in more Black and other attorneys of color to become a larger force in the legal industry? We've talked about the window dressing, I mean, checking the box, holidays, that's not gonna do it. What will?
2: Well, I think we have to be serious about engineering a process that makes sense and not regurgitating the same letters, the same window dressing. So, it, and, and it's going to be a multi layered process. One, corporations first and foremost need to say look, there, you know, 30% of my revenue I want to go to black originators or Latino originators or Asian originators so that they can create relationships and most importantly capital and power to start mushrooming and growing ecosystems in their firm, one. Second, law firms have to totally diversify leadership. And I've been on executive committees on several firms as dismal, right? Even women, I mean, just women, We make more than 50% of the profession. It's hard to have women on the executive committees and boards. That's, that can no longer be acceptable in, in 21st century legal profession. Third, we have to hold uh, lawyers of color responsible for developing other lawyers of color and hiring them and putting them on their files. Right now, we don't do that. We, lawyers of color, feel like they're constrained, but we need to push them to create the ecosystem. And just like we would push the law firms, you gotta show me if I'm sending you this business as the corporation, show me how you're developing the community. If you can't show me that you're developing the community, it's the same, you're just profiting personally from it, then I can go to somebody else. I can stay with the majority guy to get the same result, right? Then we have to go back to law schools and law schools help them re-engineer their, their uh, recruiting process for people of color. The numbers are down drastically, right? the, the, bar, the bar taking rates for people of color are down drastically. So we have a pipeline problem that is emerging and before too long, we're going to have dry, right? The pipeline gonna be dry. And then at the firm, we have to create a more embracing environment for people of color and continuing to grow a system that's respectful, that, that's governed properly, and that takes into consideration everything, not just color. That's
1: some great, great advice, Don. And at this point, in our, in our conversation, we typically ask for a last word. And since you've already given us that great last word with respect to the law firms and the corporate law departments on several different levels, what would be three pieces of sound advice you would give to lawyers of color who are poised and ready to take their careers to the next level? Yeah, you
2: know, piece one is The thing that's always disappointing, I think, is that we people of color are not intellectually curious about one another. We don't know each other, right? We don't know who's in our community. We don't have the connection. We're kind of shifts passing in the night. We have to stop that. We have to all know each other, benefit from each other's lessons, uh, they, there's more like i like to say there's more than one rolex for everybody right mr last i checked mr rolex didn't make just one rolex everybody can get a rolex you don't you're not competing with your own people far we're we're so behind we can't compete with it's ridiculous <laughs> to compete with ourselves right it's competing with yourself so we we have to develop a community of relationships that helps us get through this Second, I think, and I hate to say this because I don't want it to seem as if I'm rendering any segment of the legal profession unimportant, but I think it's important for lawyers of color to develop their own business. You could be a subject matter expert and have a great career. You could be a non-equity partner and not a lot of business and have a great career, be very That's excellent. But I think ultimately you need your business portability. You need the ability to make changes and to go someplace else and to expand what you can do. And your power base comes from your ability to have business. So uh, the last one I'll say is the in-house people of color, stop being scared of hiring your people.
1: Say that again for the people in the back. (laughs) Stop being scared
2: of hiring your own
1: people. (laughs) Amen. Got it.
3: Well, Don, we'd really like to thank you for providing us with so much valuable information and insight into issues related to representation and participation of lawyers of color in today's workplace and inside law firms. So thank you so much for being our guest
2: today. It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you for the invitation.
1: Yeah, thank you, Don. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S. W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.